On Saturday, you told us uh, your doctrine is strength and achieving strength. peace through strength. Right. After Helsinki, uh, Lindsey Graham said you showed weakness. Uh, well, Lindsey Graham said it was the most to, serious let, mistake let of just, your presidency. Let me just, I, I totally disagree. I think I did great at the news conference. I think it was a strong news conference. You have people that said you should have gone up to him, you should have walked up and uh, started screaming in his face. We're living in the real world, okay? Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. And this is Abby Martin. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, everyone. Sorry I'm sick today. A little stuffed up. But yeah, we have a lot to talk about. We basically just wanted to do an entire podcast um, based on the new indictments about the Russians that allegedly hacked into the DNC, um, et cetera, et cetera. So my brother did a, a shitload of research that we're just going to go through. And yeah, it's it's been kind of disappointing to see the coverage, frankly, of left-leaning progressive uh, organizations on the indictments because... I just oh, haven't yeah. seen anything like lucidly breaking down, you know, what they mean and, and what's really going on. It's just kind of, um, except for know. people who believe them and that like accept all the, let's just put it this way, non-evidence listed in it. It's an opaque yeah. indictment yeah. where we don't actually see the evidence that was used to gather this, you know, to, to construct this case of these charges. Exactly. But I also just wanted to throw out there that this indictment came two days before this this Helsinki summit that was, you know, the media was already screaming about and having a a fit about because Trump was going to have a private something like hour long meeting with Putin at it. And this and this Helsinki summit came about a week after Trump going to NATO and insulting, you know, apparently the whole NATO body and and freaking out all of the pundit and think tank class again by saying that NATO needs to pay which is something he's been saying like the entire time. So this all happened very quickly. It was almost like the NATO thing happened. Everybody freaked out. Then the indictment came two days before this like heavily feared, you know, talked about summit. And then things just exploded in a way that I have not seen, Abby, since probably right after 9-11. Like in terms of the media's hysterical tone and the way they were reacting to it, I've not seen something like this in a very long time and it was yeah, throwing around the word treason every other oh my god and headline it was, it I mean, was frightening unbelievable i was yeah. i felt like i was in a heightened state almost in a similar way to like when you're being bombarded with propaganda where you like feel that something is happening and it just puts you almost like in an altered state it was one of the most extreme two-day tv news periods i've witnessed in years and years luckily very, very i missed disturbing. all of that because i was not watching cable, but it was bad enough just looking online. Oh yeah, you could see, you could definitely see it online. I'm sure you saw the Jen, John Brennan tweets, which we'll go into oh. later. Oh yeah, no, we'll go into the craziest of that. Um, do we even want to get into any headlines? Yeah, in this I mean, episode, we or might should as we well just get just right to the quickly? I mean, okay, really quickly, I wanted to just give a shout out to the podcast and talk about how we did two bonus episodes last month. So in the month month of June, we have two freebies that we did not charge patrons for. So be sure to check those out. Um, we just kind of wanted to give you guys an extra treat because of all your support and and yeah. So check it out. We have a whole new podcast with John Gold. 
about his book, We Were Lied To About 9-11. And there's a, uh, an extra podcast with me and Rob from last month. So be sure to check it out. We did like six episodes, I think, for June, yeah. didn't we? Yep. We've been cranking them out and we're going to continue doing four a month. And you were recently on the Chris Ryan and Duncan Trussell podcast. Yeah, check it out. This is These are two great, great guys. Uh, Chris Ryan isn't a comedian, but he's just a really amazing author. He wrote Sex at Dawn. He's just like a really forward-thinking intellectual that um, has really thought-provoking conversations on his podcast. So check that out. Also, Duncan Trussell's a hilarious comedian. <laughs> um, and we just had a really fun conversation. So check that out as well. Something that we talked about in the last podcast was Elon Musk trying to seize um, basically every global situation into his own PR stunt. And as I'm saying this, I just read something this morning that he was like trying to basically say that he's going to save Flint now yeah, and provide clean drinking water. So unbelievably, um, he took a complete fucking dive um, since we last talked about this. And because people no have argued intended. with us for, for years, people <laughs> have argued with us for years saying Elon Musk is great. Why do you guys always talk about him? He's, you know, he's this amazing innovator. They were defending SpaceX launch, da, da, da. The problem is he just literally lost his shit. Um, I just said, I like how I just said literally. <laughs> he just lost his yeah. shit, man. Um, All the shit on was top just of- evacuated out of his body. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was trying to, he was trying to seize this PR with the, the rescue mission in Thailand with those 12 Thai boys. And so, um, what ended up happening is, is because the Thai cave rescue worker called it a PR stunt, you know, after they saved all the, all the kids, we explained Mm -hmm. how it wasn't even feasible with the design of the mini sub. So hilariously he came out and said, he didn't just call it a PR stunt. He also made like a insulting comment to Elon Musk, which I think it was what Elon Musk was mostly reacting to. Did you hear that part where he said you can? I can tell Elon Musk where to put his submarine, where to stick his submarine. <laughs> yeah. So Elon Musk responded and he said, "Never saw this British expat guy who lives in Thailand sus at any point when we were sus. in the caves." He was like, "Only people in sight were the Thai Navy Army guys who were great. Those Thai Navy SEALs escorted us in. Total opposite of wanting us to leave." Blah, 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 unsung heroes. And he was like, so you know what? Don't bother showing the video. Like basically basically combating the guy saying he was able to use the mini sub to rescue these kids, that the guy was lying and obfuscating the actual like channels of the cave because he wanted to be alone with the boys. That's what he's he's alleging that, no, the submarine did work. You guys aren't showing the videos of the chambers correctly. And then he says, you know what? Don't bother showing the video. He's like, we're going to make one of the mini sub pod going all the way to cave prob... Cave five, no problemo. Sorry, pedo guy. You really did ask for it. Holy shit. So that's when he, so he jumped from saying what, but he, didn't he say something in between there where he was like, he was like, he like explained why he said sus before he jumped to straight calling him a pedo or did he just go straight from sus to This is all one little thread. No, yeah. Sus and then pedo guy immediately. And then what's hilarious is people were like, wait a minute. Did you actually just call that guy a pedophile? Like, and he was like, yeah, he's like, what? And then all of his fans, similarly to like Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson fans, d- will defend him to the death. And so they, I've seen the most hilarious like mental gymnastics of people who are like, no, he really meant pedo, meaning fool, like based on the Latin. Oh my suffix, God, I saw that shit. Like an ancient. <laughs> you showed that to me. 
<laughs> so it's just like, or people being like, well, what? We don't know if he's a pedophile or not. It's like, what the fuck are you talking like, It was like, like it's, actually saying, well, we don't know that he's not a pedophile. It's just like uh, when, when a bunch of people said that Trump saying Kofifi meant yes. something like something in Arabic, like be strong in Arabic. Right. I, I mean, it's so strange to me that it's these people who have these cultish followings of these quasi intellectuals just look you know, arguably dumber than like the dumbest conservative, like grandma Fox news watchers out there by, by acting like this and doubling down to defend him. Yeah. And then he said, bet you a signed dollar. It's true. Like doubled down on it. <laughs> someone was like, wow. It was like another day, just like another bizarre comment from Elon Musk calling this guy a pedophile. And he's like, bet you a signed dollar. It's true. And then this is coming right on the heels of coming out that he gave $40,000 to the Protect the House PAC to keep the GOP in charge of Congress. This is supposedly this leading environmentalist, essentially funds like the Sierra Club, um, and is, you know, the Tesla stuff, like all about combating climate change. And here he is funding the Republicans. And he didn't deny it at all. He was like, yeah, he's like, well, I fund both parties, so they'll listen to me. Yeah, but then, but the the re- reality is he funds something like a Republican um Packs and candidates something like 10 times more than he has anybody, any Democrats. I was just reading an he just article. Wants that said that. He just wants their ear, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the most insane thing ever. I'd, I had no idea how hard he would crash and burn literally within like just a week. Well, I mean, there's a, no coming back from this. Well, I think there might not be, but at the same time, like we're living in the age of Trump, and what yeah. he's doing reminds me of Trump. It's like, Maybe he's a believer of the philosophy that bad press is good press because somehow he's managed to be in the headlines of the news every single week for like the entire like last six months that I can remember. I can, I cannot remember a week going by where there wasn't a story about Elon Musk. That's impressive. If your goal is just to be constantly in the media, kind of like how Donald Trump would just be constantly trying to get himself in the tabloids like before he became president for just the weirdest shit. Like, did you read that story from, I think it was in the Inquirer probably, because that's the one that he like gets to run any story that he wants. We're saying he randomly jumped out of a car in New York City to like disrupt a mugging like a superhero. Donald Trump or Elon Musk? No, Donald Trump. Oh my God. It was just like a, it seemed like a totally made up story. Of course. Um, and there was like a cab driver who witnessed it, which is like, how hard is it to pay off like a random cab driver when you're a billionaire? I mean, I don't know. Wow. It's just interesting that people don't aren't looking at it that way. That I to me, it almost seems like he just wants negative attention, positive or negative. It doesn't matter to him. Yeah, and he's surrounded by people who are like, "You're a genius." Of course, the guy's a pedophile. Like, you're totally right. I mean, he just pay. He probably just pays people to be friends with him mm-hmm. and have like this entourage of people who just boost his ego constantly. Otherwise, you wouldn't ever say something like that. I mean, when he said that, I was like, "Oh, this is gonna be deleted in like a heartbeat," and he just left it up. Oh yeah, and was like, "Yeah, bet you it's true." It's like, holy, like how crazy is this? Well, it's definitely anyway. It's Let's, crazy as fuck. So really quickly, I wanted to just say um, Ocasio-Cortez did an interview with, a, you know, someone who was vehemently, obviously pro-Israel, and she confronted her about her comments saying that the Great March of Return was a massacre. So Ocasio-Cortez, you could tell she's young, you know, she's only 28 and she hasn't been to the West Bank or Gaza. Um, so she didn't, she wasn't really conclusive or confident about her views and she couldn't really explain why it's an occupation. And so she was grilled by this woman and, you know, and it's unclear where she's going to end up 
on this issue. So she said that she believes in a two-state solution. Of course, she believes in Israel's right to exist, et cetera, et cetera. And she also couldn't explain why Palestine is occupied. Um, just really quickly commenting on that, um, I used to have hope for a two-state solution before I understood the atomization of the West Bank. And really, it just takes you looking at the final map, that famous map showing the deterioration of land um, you know, from 1948, and you can see the small dots, um, within, you know, what, what should have been allocated for the future land of Palestine. And it's just an atomized set of dots now that, um, the conquest is almost completely done. I mean, there just was a study that over 50 years of occupation, Israel has given colonizing settlers in the West Bank 99.7% of all land grants. My God. So, so that just proves it right there. I mean, they're almost done fully conquering the last vestiges of land. And that was allegedly the future Palestinian state. So for people who don't really understand this issue yet, I would just recommend watching the documentaries we made, really kind of getting a grasp on why that is just not feasible anymore and how it hasn't actually been entertained for decades within Israeli, Israeli society. They just throw it out as kind of a token just to keep the rhetoric alive because it's just confusing. So well, I remember check even it when, out. I mean, that's the interesting thing is that the two state solution used to be like the quasi, that was the like liberal left, you know, like yeah. left leaning solution back in the late nineties or early aughts before. I think what you're saying is that a lot of people had a greater understanding of how atomized and how it's not po- simply just not possible. Right. To do that at all. I mean, even when Bush said he wanted a two-state solution, that was considered more to the left than most of the neocons that were screaming in his ear at the time. Right. I mean, if you remember correctly, during the Bush administration, there were neocons actually telling him to clean out Arafat's regime and like actually send U.S. troops to Palestine. You know, Don (laughs) Fred Kagan said that. But then also... One of the actual, the second PNAC paper to come out after 9-11 totally took a left turn, kind of matching that Don and Fred Kagan interview where it was like, we need to focus on Israel right now and really help them out during the, like, the war on terror because they're like our allies in this fight. And it goes on to explain how we need to put all this pressure on Arafat. It doesn't say attack him, but it does say like root out Hamas and all this shit. So right. if the neocons really wanted to get their way, that's the the big secret is they would have used military force to cl- quote clean out Palestinian territories for the IDF, basically fighting alongside IDF soldiers to like murder and c- f- complete the genocide, murder yeah. Palestinians. And speaking of murder, um, Israel just carried out another bombing in Gaza that was actually the largest bombardment since the 2014 utter massacre. You know that took the lives of 500 children. You know why? Because they were sending arson balloons. Balloons and kites. I mean, has there ever been an actual military incursion as a reaction of balloons and kites in the history of fucking humanity before? Because this is just like cartoonish at this point. Speaking of cartoons, I mean, they love using cartoons to justify their massacres, but here they're actually justifying their massacre because of a balloon. So they said that they bombed this building because they were sending arson balloons from it and they killed two teenage boys. Um, Amir al- Nimra, who was 15 years old, and Luai Kahul, mm-hmm. 16, died together. If two Israeli teenagers died together, it'd be front page on every newspaper in the whole entire world. Oh my God. So the fact that two 15-year-old Palestinians died in this airstrike, it really was not mentioned at all, and it's just forgotten about. If a rocket 
you know, one of these supposed Hamas rockets killed two Israeli teenagers, Netanyahu would <clears throat> run his entire next campaign right, for office exactly. on that. Period. Right. It's 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 ridiculous. And it's also ridiculous how that was the initial reason for launching these strikes, but yet Israel, of course, says it was from Hamas rockets. They don't talk about in terms of the escalation, you know, retaliating against these kites with actual bombs. Yeah. They just make it seem like it was like a rocket attack and they had to retaliate. Just like they I always just heard do. that they're building another settlement even closer than that one where, you know, the, the Israeli settlers cheer on the bombing of Gaza and drink beer and like say that it's the best show in town. They're actually building a settlement even closer. It's almost just like a direct provocation. Almost. I mean, why would you even want to live there knowing that you could potentially get hit by a rocket? It's almost like you're, you're purposefully putting human shields on the border of the prison. It's just nuts to me. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it seems like it's designed to just escalate a confrontation mm-hmm. on purpose. Right. The way that the actual IDF tweeted something out a few months ago saying, we got a rock was thrown at one of our soldiers. So we had to like chase after the person who did it and we ended up killing someone. Whoops. We had to eliminate the terrorist threat. Yeah. Wow. You actually tweeted that out to the world that someone <laughs> threw a rock at you. And because of that, you had to shoot someone in the head. Like you shouldn't tweet stuff like that. At least cover it up. <laughs> crazy motherfuckers what the fuck <laughs> and and to prove this whole neo-nazi Jesus. tie white supremacist tie to israel that people think that is laughable when i talk about look no further than tommy robinson this is that uk hero that's heralded by the alt-right as some like martyr he was in contempt of court i mean he was on probation for like doing like a citizen journalism live stream outside of the court like harassing the people that were going to go in and testify or something like that so already he was slapped with a probation saying you cannot do this again otherwise you will get arrested and so what did he do he did it again and he got arrested and then he was immediately like thrown in jail. And so people are like, free Tommy Robinson, free Tommy Robinson. This guy's amazing. I mean, this is the guy who goes around to no-go zones, quote unquote, and like provokes actual fistfights with migrants and refugees. Yeah, Literally. He, he's just another one of these people joining together with the American right wing to exploit the classic method of just like scapegoating immigrants and non-white people. To make it seem like it's the end of the world. I mean, it's just that it's a tale as old as time. And it's fucking pathetic that all these civil libertarians who used to understand that scapegoating Muslims was like a plank of imperialism are just like falling into this bullshit and thinking and, and buying into this as some kind of free speech argument. Really, really pathetic. And I, and I cannot believe those people are dumb enough to fall for it. Well, it's also people who have no concept of the laws with court reporting and this one well, that court too reporter yeah the uk has the extremely UK. strict laws yeah. and the, this one court reporter said no tommy robinson was not unjustly arrested here's actually what happened and what we have to go through to do our job yeah he like, tried to bring and, a camera into the original yeah. reason he was on probation because he tried to film a closed court hearing you can, i mean right, if that i walked into a court yet. hearing and yeah, did that, exactly. i'd be arrested too here right yeah exactly it's just <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. So the, the reason that I brought him up is because a pro-Israel think tank, a hardcore Zionist think tank called Middle East Forum is funding his legal fees, funding his legal fees. So why is that? Why is this, um, you know, supposedly, you know, democratic state that's that's all for multiculturalism? Why are they aligned with a think tank that is funding Tommy Robinson's legal fees? It's just very interesting. These these tie ins with the alt-right and white supremacy movements with Israel. 
Did you hear about this? That Sam Brownback, this is from Reuters, the U.S. ambassador for international religious freedom under the Trump administration, actually tried to lobby the British government to release Tommy Robinson. So the Trump administration actually had some involvement (laughs) in trying to get Tommy Robinson out of jail. Wow. Yeah. Trump would have pardoned him if he were American, for sure. Mm -hmm. He would have gotten him out months ago. Oh, yeah. I mean, it fits perfectly within what he, like the type Mm -hmm. of red meat he wants to throw to his base, for sure. So let's jump right into this, Robbie. Let's jump right into the indictment. You've done tons of research. You've been really in the weeds with this whole issue. And so just keep in mind for the layman like me and other people who maybe don't know the terminology and just just kind of explain what the indictment is and go through the main points for us. It's going to be a little bit legalese because I'm I'm doing an original analysis of the indictment. I wanted to avoid a lot of the spin because, of course, most of the spin, 99% of it, is just reinforcing the indictment Mm -hmm. and also trying to fill in the blanks because an indictment in and of itself is opaque. We don't know what the actual evidence is often and, and frequently throughout this indictment. We can only speculate based on mostly based on just previous news stories or data collection methods that we know that exist. So So, really quick question, an indictment itself does not mean that the evidence is conclusive in order to issue the indictment, correct? Correct, because it hasn't gone to trial yet. But this is even funnier than normal because this indictment is not meant to bring anyone to trial. That's what's so fascinating about this indictment and the last indictment is that it is... And, and I'll go into this later. What I believe the indictment's purpose is, is to create a visual narrative for the public mind in the domestic political landscape. It, it actually serves no other purpose than that. And I'll explain more later what I mean. Um, I had a really interesting conversation with Yasha Levine about this because we were both just going crazy about it. And he's one of the only people I knew to talk to who's like not on board with this. He was mostly fascinated by the fact that this indictment and the previous one are sort of like a new tradition of indicting so-called spies. It's, it's not meant to arrest anybody. We have no intention of going to Russia and extraditing these people whatsoever. So that being said, let me just go through what the indictment actually is. It directly names 12 alleged GRU agents, Russian intelligence agents, for conspiring to hack into various DNC and other political servers and computers for nefarious purposes to tr- of trying to interfere with our election. Um, it even gives out all the names of these GR- GRU agents and the address of apparently the office in which they conducted this hacking from, which Yasha Levine says he just like randomly would walk by all the time. It didn't look like, you know, anything, just like a random office building. The indictment itself, if you read through it, appears to, and this is my own analysis, appears to connect data sets from a Dutch intelligence investigation that was done on the GRU, apparent NSA, Google, and Twitter surveillance done on Gutsifer 2.0, and whoever was using the Gutsifer 2.0 account. That's actually a speculation that comes from Mika Lee of The Intercept, which I actually disagree with his analysis and, and actually much of his political point of view over the last year. So I'll go into that later. But he speculates that a lot of this was collected through NSA, Google, and Twitter surveillance, which kind of makes sense if you read through the indictment. And it connects the Gutsifer 2.0 theories originally referenced in the 2016 DNI report that you were mentioned in, Abby, mm-hmm. and a flawed timeline of when the leaks happened and the direct, uh, DM exchanges between people like Roger Stone and WikiLeaks. 
So people have already found errors in just the chronology of what's in the indictment. If we're just talking about them trying to connect the dots of WikiLeaks talked to Guccifer 2 then, uh, the leaks came out then, Roger Stone DM so-and-so then, the timeline of itself, people have already found errors in it. So they haven't combed through it very carefully in this indictment. In this indictment, there is still no evidence or proof that Guccifer 2.0 is the source of the DNC emails and the Podesta emails. Oh, wow. It's only speculated based on an alleged one gigabyte plus file transfer that Guccifer 2 pointed WikiLeaks towards. That's it. That's not conclusive at all. I mean, even the indictment, that's all it says. So just a side note, other right-wing figures are mentioned in this indictment but are not directly named in it and are not charged but are considered part of the larger conspiracy planks in it. Uh, a journalist, Lee Stranahan, who used to work for Breitbart. Who's on Sputnik now. <laughs> he's on Sputnik now. He's actually working with Frank Gaffney on a new documentary, which is very fascinating. Alex Jones and Roger Stone are also mentioned in the indictment. Roger Stone is mentioned multiple times, but not named directly. And, and he's also not charged. But this indictment could be just meant to make Roger Stone and his other collaborators feel like the walls are closing in. And it kind of might explain why he freaked out so badly last month on Randy Critico. Maybe maybe there's other things happening where he's getting worried about right. what his legal standing is going to be. Because, I mean, Roger Stone, I mean, we've been talking about this for like a year, Abby, that he definitely was the bridge for Trump's administration like into conspiracy culture. So we know that. It's just they're trying to, this indictment is trying to weave him into this greater conspiracy of... Mm-hmm. And and it is a literal. That's literally what they're charging these people with. I'm going to go through really quickly actual criminal codes. I, I forgot to write down the actual numbers of the codes, but I'll just read to you what the actual crimes are under the law that they are charging these people with. And this indictment was filed on July 13th, which came two days before the Helsinki summit. That is extremely important timing. Oh yeah, and extremely important to mention that Mueller had these indictments ready for six months apparently, but he wow. decided. Yeah, he decided until right before the summit. Well, that's really fascinating because the previous indictment, Abby, the IRA Russian Troll Factory one came out in February 6, 2018. So that's about six months ago. So, yeah, yeah, they were all together, I guess, but he just decided to hold off to keep it, keep the hysteria going. Well, yeah, if you don't, I mean, one of the purposes of what I would describe as this long term propaganda campaign is to have things trickle out over a long period of time to keep things in the headlines. That's it's the simmering effect. And this last blow, this last like attempt they made is really seems to have boiled most of the frogs. Everyone is convinced now. Very few people left. We talked about everyone dropping like flies. Almost everyone has dropped like a fly. Now everyone's bitten the dust. Uh, Sean King was using the word treason yesterday, talking about Trump at the Helsinki summit Things are flipping very quickly. Almost yeah, everybody just, has flipped now. I mean, there really aren't mm-hmm. any, there's really very few people out there left. It's shocking. Well, it's really unfortunate because I think the nature of this investigation is so convoluted. It's so hard to actually dig in and find out what's going on if you don't understand how computers work and and how all of this functions. I mean, it was hard for me. You know, oh, to look through so, all of this stuff. And so, of course, of course, the majority of people are just going to take it at face value. And I even watched this 
um, another debate that, that Aaron Mate on Real News did with someone who wrote another book called Russian Roulette, who had questioned, he was one of the biggest questioners of the Iraq war propaganda and the intelligence that we were given. Um, but, but even given that, he was like, it's absurd to just not take this evidence. He's like, because everyone agrees in the intelligence community. And he was like, and even though we don't have the evidence in front of us, he's like, no one, you know, they couldn't have just come up with this conclusive indictment if there, if there was nothing there. And like that, that's just odd to me. It's very odd, especially because as Yasha Levine said in this conversation I had with him, cyber attribution is well known to be very, very difficult. Even when you're, you have the full resources of like a federal law and or law enforcement or even intelligence spying agency to try to attribute a cyber attack to an individual or a state actor, it's virtually impossible. So yeah, no, what I'm about to go through though yeah. is actually reveals some interesting um, reasons why that why they believe they could attribute these cyber attacks to individuals because they had. Apparently, they were surveilling the inside of their computers while they conducted the hack. Which really gonna, quickly before before yeah. you get into that, I just wanted to to your point. Yasha Levine posted an article from the New York Times back in two thousand nine. The U.S. and Russia were trying to debate a treaty for cyberspace, and the U.S. said they're resistant to agreements that would allow governments to censor the internet saying that they would provide cover for totalitarian regimes. And then they said they also worry that a treaty would be ineffective because it can be almost impossible to determine if an internet attack was originated from a government, a hacker loyal to that government, or a rogue acting independently. That is so this is actually the New York Times explaining 10 years ago that the U.S. did not want a treaty with Russia because it's virtually impossible to attribute a hack. Well, that's so fascinating because that middle possibility, a loyal hacker to the government, is sort of what Putin was throwing out as a possibility. He was like, I don't know if like a loyal... Like someone loyal to the Russian (laughs) government did it or not. Like that's possible. He, He threw that out there about a year ago. And that's something that's not being talked about enough. Just that possibility. Because... What this indictment does, Abby, is it directly links these GRU agents who, you know, are directly allegedly taking orders from Putin, which is kind of an absurd notion because so. It, but let me just go through just back to the actual indictment really quick, just so people know what these crimes are. And this is important to know because what's because as Adam Carter, a.k.a. the forensicator, has pointed out, it's more actually interesting to see what's not listed as crimes in the indictment. And I'll explain in a second. So the crimes that are listed in this indictment from July 13, 2018 against these 12 GRU agents are the following. Count one, conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States. Counts two through nine, aggravated identity theft. Count 10, conspiracy to launder money. Count 11, conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States. So what you don't see there is that What's missing, and this is what Adam Carter points out, he asks, who is charged under USC 52 in the indictment? Nobody. What is USC 52? It's the U.S. Code for Election-Related Crimes. What does that mean? It means that anyone that's told you the indictment charges people for election interference has lied. Because that's a specific crime in the U.S. Criminal Code. And what, interference in elections? Yes. Wow. Yes. And interestingly, the previous indictment... The Russian troll farm IRA indictment from February 6th 
Count one, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Count two, conspiracy to commit wire fraud and bank fraud. Counts three through eight, aggravated identity theft. So again, so similar. It, yeah, it's like actually even like less uh, bad than the pre, than the newer indictment. But what's also missing from there is nothing having to do with espionage, treason. I mean, these are Russian agents, so treason wouldn't be in there. But espionage, spying, there are actual criminal codes for those things. So those aren't in there. So it gets it brings us to the next point of this is what. What is the purpose of this indictment? Is this a normal indictment for spying or espionage? Or is it something more to create a visual narrative story for the public? So Adam Carter also points out one more thing that's being overlooked in the indictment. He says, quote, Mueller's indictment in relation to voting only alleges voter records were copied, not altered. So this could have been something, and this is just me commenting, this could have been something that was more of a data collection spying operation rather than an attempt to alter election results. And then Adam Carter goes on to say, with no further use attributed to the details copied, it doesn't actually demonstrate or even charge anyone directly with election interference. Again, that's a very important point because as as much as we hear about meddling and interference, what are the actual charges? And that needs to be, I think, specifically looked at. But as you said, Abby, it is a very convoluted indictment. It has very many twists and turns it is impossible for a normal person to break this down without spending perhaps weeks and months actually picking it apart. And that's, I think, also part of its purpose. It's meant to be kind of confusing and opaque and convoluted, but also meant to weave together narratives that we've been hearing for the past year that sound very plausible. So we have to ask the question, is this a new thing is the, or is it normal for the United States government, the Department of Justice, to charge foreign intelligence agents in a foreign country on their own soil that we really have no intention or plans to go and t- bring back the United States. Is that a right, normal... Right, like just kind of a symbolic indictment. Exactly. So that goes back to what Yasha was saying, is he believes it's sort of meant to create a visual narrative. It's almost meant to be symbolic more than something real and substantial. Like even just in terms of the media side of this, we have all their names. All of these Russian names are in this indictment. The office of where they worked is apparently, you know, it's the addresses in the indictment. If CNN or Fox News or MSNBC was interested in real journalism, they would have reporters already in Russia trying to find these people and talk to them in these offices. So even that's strange. It's like that's not even being done by the media, but yet listening to the media after the indictment, everyone seemed to be repeating this talking point saying, when is Trump going to demand that Trump extradite these 12 Russians? Why doesn't he demand that he do that? And it's like, well, first of all, Putin would never do that in any scenario. So it's a, it's a bullshit talking in the first place. And then also it's a clearly some kind of symbolic indictment. It's not meant to get these, these people. So I think that can, cannot be stressed enough. Um, and apparently the only time this method has been used before was some indictments on Chinese hackers during the Obama administration where they were similarly unreachable on Chinese soil and we never actually tried to extradite them or anything. Yeah. And on top of this indictment, there was that arrest of the Russian woman, um, the Russian national, the 29-year-old Maria Butina. And I don't want to conflate this too much, but it was just an add-on 
to this whole probe and the announcement of all the indictments was this arrest of this woman. However, when you look into her story, it's just quite odd because she has nothing to do with what we're talking about. She simply was a Russian who joined the NRA um, and kind of worked her way up the National Rifle Association to, I don't know, influence the National Rifle Association. Well, apparently she tried to um, yeah, buddy up to NRA officials here and then get NRA officials here to, to start a campaign in Russia trying to push Russians' right to bear arms in Russia. And it, it's beyond odd because how does that affect our election or our politics? Well, it's also, I hate to do the whole, like, we do it too thing, but holy shit. I mean, if you're going to arrest someone for that and make this huge story about it, then what is USAID? <laughs> like, I mean, in Cuba alone, it's like, Jesus, can you imagine Cuba, like the Cuban government arresting the dozens of, if not hundreds of people that are infiltrating all of like the social strata there to try to do stuff like that? I mean, it's just really strange. It's very but. strange. And I remember right before John Bolton got picked, I don't know if you remember this, Abby, people were like, why is John Bolton doing an NRA ad in Russia? Instead of saying, why is Trump picking the most dangerous war hawk ever? They were like trying to attach John Bolton to Russia. And it links to this, this woman. She also convinced John Bolton to record a video for this NRA rally in Russia. That's hilarious. It's bizarre. Very bizarre. So anyway, just getting her out of the way, because it's just yeah. kind of a side and I, note. And I just wanted to, just one last comment about her is that, again, she was not hiding the fact that she was like working with the Russian government. So to say she was some kind of spy or infiltrator, it's very inaccurate. And you just need to look at the details of, of her and see video clips of her saying she works with a Russian government officials in old videos, and it's she's not hiding it. So I don't understand how this is Putin or Russia trying to infiltrate our system when it seems like if they were trying to quote unquote infiltrate us, they were doing it completely nakedly out in the open, just like a Russian TV channel operating in the United States was doing. So I guess that's my only comment on it. I don't understand why that's being made such a big deal of. I mean, it's, I guess it's interesting, just like it's interesting that people from the IRA were trying to pretend to be martial arts teachers for Black Lives Matter or something. But ultimately, what is what did it actually do? Yeah, she had apparently back in 2016, she had already bragged about helping the Trump campaign communicate with Russia. Um, so they're claiming that she didn't inform the U.S. government she was acting as a foreign agent on U.S. soil. But it seems like it was pretty clear. Nobody gets charged under that registration. D.C. is filled with thousands of people yeah, who aren't exactly. registered. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That after Paul Manafort... The, that era is dwindling. So like that changed the landscape of D.C. when there are now more foreign agents are afraid to go unregistered, apparently. And I don't know if that's true. I feel like that's not true at all because we know how much Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the UAE exactly. just have of thousands of people on the ground. Yeah. You know, it probably, you know what, it's probably only has to, it's probably only true for Russia. <laughs> yeah, of course. Russia and Venezuela and yeah, yeah, yeah. Country, And Iran or something. <laughs> yeah, like It's exactly. probably only true for like three countries. Right. But yeah, Yasha and, and I just had a really interesting conversation about this idea of what is the purpose of this if it's not actually to prove the case or to really get anybody or to punish anybody. And this idea of it being a visual narrative, like he was saying, now that they have this indictment, you can make a movie out of this now. 
and and have like actors pretending to hack into the DNC and make like a a big short style like comedy kind of movie out of this. I mean, if you read through the entire indictment, Abby, we'll see what I mean by it is because it goes through like blow by blow, like when they left the office, the steps of the hacking. It's very yeah, it's like a Tom visual. Clancy novel. Yeah. yeah, it's very, very visual. It's it's very actually entertaining. It's kind of like hacker culture, hacker popular culture kind of stuff. This idea of these intangible, untouchable bogeymen, even though we know their names, we, we can ultimately never prove that they did this because a digital trail is ultimately really not proof of anything. And, it, and a, a digital trail can be easily forged. And, and so this idea of like cyber attribution with names seems so delicious and like satisfying to all these people, but can we trust it at all? Well, just like how it's sloppy, like if Guccifer 2.0 really was a Russian asset, he was sloppy and his fingerprints were all over it, meaning it, it easily linked exactly. to Russian intelligence. And that's that's the problem that I have. Why would they be so sloppy and haphazard with it? Really quick point, Robbie, that I want you to just explain is this is just the phishing links to to Podesta hacking into the DNC that we're talking about. Really quickly, I'm just going to read a quote from The Intercept talking about this. Shortly before the 2016 presidential election, Russian military hackers tried to trick employees of VR Systems, a Florida-based e-voting vendor, into downloading computer hijacking malware, according to a top-secret NSA report. As recently as last month, the company denied any breach had occurred, and that's why we saw it kind of be debunked. We were like, oh, well, the company itself is saying that that's fake. But then, um, judging from the indictment, the indictment claims that the hacking attempt did work. So well, yeah. I guess how does that fit into the phishing link with Podesta? It doesn't. It okay. doesn't. It fits into this overall narrative of a conspiracy to hurt the United States. And as Adam Carter pointed out, they that actual hack in the indictment it just says they copied data it doesn't say that they changed any data or did anything to it so so even just that could have just been let's just say if it's real could have just been a data collection operation spying and nothing more but then again this whole idea that we know that these people are working for the russian government is also murky and that we know they're Rush GRU agents, for sure, Russian intelligence. And a lot of this attribution comes from CrowdStrike and other private security firms that are basically sure and have convinced everybody that these different malware and codes, Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, are GRU. That normal, regular Russians or regular hackers aren't behind them. Which to me all just seems like I don't understand how you could leap to that conclusion because... If you wanted to falsely attribute something to somebody else, that's the type of stuff you would use. So, so again, what, so explain it, really quickly what they are attributing to Russian intelligence. What characteristics of the hack are they saying that Fancy Bear and Well, and let me Guccifer, I'm going to move okay. to that in a second because okay. I just wanted to just discuss more just what what this purpose of this indictment could sure. be because one thing it did is it ratcheted up the hysteria and the propaganda level to levels that I have not seen since Trump has been in office or even during the election in terms of Russia. This is the most crazy I've ever seen it. And the timing of doing it two days before this Helsinki summit, you could argue that it was designed to heat things up. And then the question is why? 
you know, the simple answer is, oh, they all want war. You know, the deep state wants war or whatever. Sort of the oversimplified narrative. But I think, I mean, it could be more complicated than that. It could be to put pressure on Trump's administration and Trump to get him to flip his rhetoric, just like the Screepall sort of walls moving in on Trump when Theresa May and all the European leaders were almost trying to get Trump to get on board, like a three-way knockout punch. And he didn't. And at the same time, you would think that if the, if the people who are trying to ratchet up this rhetoric think that Trump would flip, they, they would have to be extremely naive to think that because his ego is too big. Why would this make him flip? Why would this indictment finally make him be like, oh, you're right. Russia meddled. It's serious. I mean, I mean, Abby, what do you think about that? I mean, obviously he's not going to flip, right? Oh, no, I totally agree. It's just like the Korea thing. I mean, it almost emboldens him more to, yeah, s- to stick right? with his guns. And I think that it's very obvious, again, the factions of the, the government that are warring with each other. I mean, yeah. we're talking about Trump representing a faction that is focused more on China. Um, and he wants to kind of eradicate this contention with Russia so they could potentially focus more on China. It's just a different faction of the deep state actors. And so, yeah. And the Democrats, of course, we know why they're focusing on Russia, you know, not only to absolve their loss, but also because they want the contention with Russia and they want to combat Russia. So it's just, it's again, just capitalist interests that are coming to a head in different ways. And it's just very yes. simplistic to, to be like the deep state is trying to sabotage Trump. Of course. So well, anyway, I mean, I think that what you're saying is, is in terms of we look at his entire administration represents a different political faction than sort of the neoliberal neocon consensus in DC. But then there's another layer to it that I was kind of, I just, it made me go back to the original tumultuous election period where it was like the entire GOP establishment was afraid of Trump. And didn't want him to even win the primary. And there was talk about a contested convention. And I was thinking back to that and trying to remember why they were so afraid of him. And it just kind of made me realize that one other possibility here is that Trump administration itself represents this other faction that's sort of warring with this other faction, which gives the appearance of this deep state versus Trump oversimplified narrative. But what if Trump at this point is simply not listening to any of his own advisors when it comes to Russia. If you really look at the optics of that Helsinki summit, it honestly seems like he listened to absolutely nobody, went in there unprepared, and just didn't give a shit. And that's what's so bizarre about it, is it really does remind me of that sort of that idea that Trump, he's too inarticulate, he says whatever he wants, he's egotistical, these are like the ultimately the real reasons why he's a bad face to the establishment for the United States. So I'm just wondering what you think about that. Oh, I totally agree. I think that I didn't actually watch the summit yet, yeah. um, but I think that Trump really admires Putin for the same reason he admires Duterte and you know for the same reason he admires Netanyahu. He likes that kind of more authoritarian strongman. And so just for that reason alone, I think he just loves Putin for just because he reminds him of himself, maybe. And he just wanted to just, you know, have a meeting with him without listening to people, perhaps. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it doesn't really make sense when you look at his advisors who are all 
anti-Russia too, for the most part. And and also when you look at Trump compared to Obama, which we've done several times, I mean, Obama refused to send lethal arms to Ukraine. President Trump has. Obama refused to bomb Syria like Trump did. And also Trump expelled all these Russian diplomats and sanctioned more Russian oligarchs than, than Obama did. So it just doesn't make sense when you're like, oh, Trump hasn't done anything against Russia. But yeah. in terms of the summit, it does seem like he was stepping out just as he did with North Korea and kind of going against the grain. Again, that that um, independent streak. Yeah, that is his only attribute. That's like somewhat good. Yeah, it's like the wild card aspect of of him being president is the only good thing about it because it does seem like when it comes down to certain issues that his ego is really attached to, let's just say the good issues like North Korea and, and having talks with Russia directly. It's like, he doesn't care what anybody thinks. He's determined to do that for his own ego satisfaction. I do think that's making a lot of people really nervous and upset right now because I would argue that even like John Bolton and these other people in his administration were extremely disappointed and just shocked at how he treated that summit right? and what he said. It was absolutely shocking. I don't want to stick on this point too much because I want to talk later about what he actually said. So I guess, should we t- go back into some of the meat of the, of the indictments now? Yeah, whatever you think is more important to get out of the way. Well, let's get the, just the meat just some okay. of the ev- the evidence yeah. and the indictments out of the way, and then we can go back into okay. um, what Trump what said and how people reacted. Yeah, that one of the things that got missed in these recent indictments that was a, like a blip on the radar in terms of a news story having to do with the Russian hacking is in January uh, of this year, a story came out saying that Dutch intelligence actually hacked into GRU computers, hacked into GRU office surveillance cameras. They watched GRU hackers hack the DNC computers in real time, and they were watching them for like up to a month doing this. And in the indictment, it makes it appear that a lot of the information came from this investigation. But it just raises a lot of questions. Like it reminds me of all that shit we would hear in the media a few years ago saying Assad is preparing for a chemical weapons attack. So they have intelligence that knows this, but they can't stop it. And they're just letting it happen. It, it Was this Dutch intelligence doing this for the U.S. government? Were they watching GRU hackers hack on U.S. instructions? It's such a weird thing when you think about it. And essentially, Dutch intelligence officials allowed GRU hackers to hack the DNC servers, but didn't try to stop them, didn't immediately notify the FBI or other government agencies. And apparently those agencies did not contact the DNC at that time. So it just raises a lot of questions. And also, if there's video footage of these indicted GRU agents taken by this Dutch intelligence team, leaving the office and screenshots of their computers breaking into the DNC, they could just show us some of that stuff. And that would be really convincing to pretty much everybody. I'm not saying it would convince me, but if they had that, it would really add to the visual narrative. So, yeah. So that's what's interesting to me. It's like, why don't we have any of that stuff? I've heard people deflect and be like, well, why would Dutch intelligence lie? Like, it's all based on this Dutch intelligence that this happened. And yeah, so that's it's just like the Dutch investigation like, mm-hmm. of uh, MH17. Sure. It seems like they're an independent, like they don't have, the, their interests aren't completely aligned with ours on the surface. Like, I don't know what the relationship is like between Dutch intelligence and U.S. intelligence, but it just raises a lot of questions. And there's a story on Ars Technica, which I recommend everybody read, called Candid Camera. 
Dutch hacked Russians hacking DNC, including security cameras. Um, that's the headline. So check that story out. Very strange. But just jumping ahead to the Guccifer 2 Russian intelligence shit. People like Marcy Wheeler seem to be 100% convinced that this is just so conclusive to the point that you're a complete fucking moron if you don't accept the premise that this is Russian intelligence. Which I, I have to say is very disappointing to hear her saying because, and this is, and, and, I, and I feel comfortable talking about this because I actually interviewed her for a very heavy agenda part four that's not released yet. I interviewed her for almost an hour and she is actually the one who turned me on to Adam Carter's Guccifer 2.0 debunking research. At the time I conducted this interview with her, she was still suspicious of the idea that Guccifer 2.0 was Russian intelligence or that Guccifer 2.0 was the person to distribute the DNC Podesta emails. So have you followed her trajectory of how she changed her mind? I have only through her blog posts. I was actually genuinely concerned after reading her blog post about saying that she for trying to to dig into this investigation she felt like her life was in danger she was worried she was possibly going to be knocked off she says in her blog post she has sources she claims she talks to that filled in a lot of these blank space spaces for her and convinced her and she um, says that one of these sources is about to go public to explain the holes that we should just take on faith I guess. Yeah, and and I don't know what to think about that because if I was communicating with, and I'm not as experienced as a journalist as her, I don't hold the candle to her level of experience, but if I was communicating with an intelligence agent or a, a law enforcement agent from the FBI as a whistleblower, as a source for a story, I would be very skeptical of what they were telling me in the sense that I would one part of me would think, are they feeding me disinformation? Is this a disinformation operation? That's how paranoid I am. So I don't understand what convinced her. Well, and, we'll find out soon, hopefully. Yeah, it was just very alarming to see because, um, you know, she she seemed pretty skeptical of a lot of the stuff until recently. And she, I, I don't mean to sound like thin-skinned about this, but I was just asking her some basic questions I thought were basic questions, but I guess because Trump has now been asking them, about the DNC server, she said it was the stupidest question ever. She told me in a Twitter exchange, asking, you know, why the chain of custody of evidence for the the CrowdStrike servers wasn't questioned more. Why the but FBI I've trusted seen her that? For, I've seen her for months though, beyond like very sure that this was Russian intelligence. Yeah, I you're mean, right. She, she's been like a for a very, few months. You're right. She yeah. has been, but just going back to the Guccifer two stuff really quick. I mean, the Guccifer two documents, um, there are quote-unquote Russian fingerprints in them that Adam Carter, researcher, has determined appear to have been deliberately planted to create the appearance of a Russian cutout that could be easily detectable to anyone with even a minor degree of cybersecurity expertise. So meaning that when you analyze these Goose for Two documents, it only took the collective crowdsourced energy of the internet 12 hours to, aha, uncover this these fingerprints of Russian intelligence, like immediately in the, in the documents. Whoever put them there, Adam Carter argues, didn't have to by default. That whoever did it, did it on purpose. Whoever made these documents and distributed them put the fingerprints in on purpose. Right. That's very odd. 
if his analysis is correct. Adam Adam Carter also breaks down the newer new Miller indictments in detail. The article's like thirty pages long, um, and he thinks it just has a lot of contradictions in it that actually are contradicted by things in the public record already, which is interesting. So be sure to look through that. And Bill Binney, like, and give Raymond, us an example. Yeah, give us an example of something that's contradicted with the public record. Um, the timelines. Yeah. And I don't know the exact details, but the timelines of the releases of the DNC and Podesta emails and the timelines of these DM exchanges and releases by for 2.0. And together with a few other researchers, Adam Carter determined that, and this is his analysis, the file transfer rate that CrowdStrike showed of these emails being transferred off the server matches up with the transfer rate of a USB thumb drive, meaning that it appears to be in some kind of inside job and not emails that were stolen through a hack. But what happened was after he came out with this research, Bill Binney and Ray McGovern endorsed it and started to go around the media to try to push this idea. And a lot of people from The Intercept and other places pushed back in a very hostile manner and, and basically accused Adam Carter and all these, you know, Bill Binney, the guy who developed Thin Thread for the NSA, of just not knowing how the internet works. And because they theorized that the transfer speed CrowdStrike alleges matches perfectly with that of a USB thumb drive rather than the available internet speeds at the time. You know, people like Sam Biddle and Mika Lee from The Intercept are like, oh, the internet was fast enough at the time to do that. That's ridiculous that you wouldn't know that. That you wouldn't know that internet cable modem speeds are way fast enough to do that speed. But Adam Carter was sort of arguing, no, that's not the main point. The main point is that the speed matches the type, like the average speed of a USB thumb drive, it's not that it's not fast enough, that the internet wasn't fast enough at the time. It's that it's, there's odd characteristics that seem like it is a USB thumb drive, that like it matches up with the speed rates. So they like kind of like strawman him with that. But anyways, just going, he, he also believes that the files were moved around by a USB device before an archiving operation appears to have carried out in the Eastern time zone shortly before release of those files. So again, there's more evidence to show that it was done in an Eastern time zone instead of like a Russian time zone. So if you go to Intercept right now, you really only find something reinforcing this indictment. And Mika Lee from The Intercept thinks the indictment is a slam dunk, along with Marcy Wheeler, who's saying all this stuff adds up. They're speculating that a lot of the evidence is probably solid because the NSA tracked and was surveilling whoever was logging into the Gutzifer 2.0 account. And they believe that it connects to the Dutch surveillance camera hacking footage that shows the GRU agents logging into these workstations. So that's kind of their speculation that they believe that's what the indictment is showing, even though we don't know that. Like, we don't really know because the evidence isn't shown in the indictment. We can only guess based on these news stories that have come out. So why is it, according to dozens of people who are commenting and reporting on this case, why is it a dumb question like what Trump is asking about the server? Exactly, right? But but I'm no, I'm asking you because um, I read a Vice article before we started this that was talking about how... Oh, the snarky ass title that was like um, yeah. Trump's stupid where is the DNC server conspiracy theory? Yeah, 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 because it says, and I'm going to read you a quote and I want yeah, you to respond it. to it. It says... Um, 
It is widely believed that CrowdStrike, a cybersecurity firm hired by the DNC to respond to the hack, gave an identical image of some of the servers to the FBI, which experts I've spoken to say would be more useful than giving the FBI a physical server itself. Um, so, for example, he talks to someone, quote, expert, who says, to keep it simple, let's say there's only one server. CrowdStrike goes in, makes a complete image, including a memory dump of everything that was in the memory of the server at the time, including traffic and connections. You have that image from the machine live in the network, including its memory content, versus a server that someone just carries into the FBI headquarters. So he was saying that all the data was like basically mirrored from the server anyway. So why is this allegedly the smoking gun from Trump and and others who are saying, why didn't you just analyze the original server? Yeah, I mean, it's, well, I I got in a Twitter exchange with that vice reporter, one of the the co-author of that document, who's apparently like a cybersecurity expert. And she was telling me that the reason why a hard drive original and a hard drive image and a hard drive original, um, unless you do it at the same... So, like, if you don't get them both at the same time, then the original hard drive could be, like, altered later and, like, it will show different results. So, I could understand that side of the argument that an actual image taken earlier at the time of the hack is more useful than just going back and looking at the hard drive later. I can understand that part of the argument. And she also makes another compelling argument that I didn't think of, that... Also, you can't, so RAM on a computer is like fluid. It changes constantly. It's not stored on a hard drive. She was explaining that if someone hacks into a computer, there's also valuable data in the RAM of the computer that might be gone in like 48 hours that will never, you know, an image is the only thing that can capture as well because you can't go back later and look into a computer's RAM and, and see what happened like a week earlier during a hack or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah. Both of those things she was telling me made sense. The part where she stopped talking to me, however, had to do with why was CrowdStrike the one to be in control of the chain of custody of evidence to the FBI? And why did the FBI accept at face value CrowdStrike's images? That's the real question. That's the question that Trump is not sophisticated enough to ask. It's a, it is a dumb question if you use a straw man, Trump, unarticulate version of it. That's why Vice can make a snarky-ass headline like, Trump's stupid, where is the DNC server conspiracy theory explained? Not, Trump's stupid, why is crowdsource in control of the chain of custody of evidence conspiracy theory explained? Because guess what? They can't fucking explain that. Her best explanation to me in a Twitter exchange, which I'll, I'll post on the timeline, was that, there's no reason not to trust CrowdStrike. That's all she said. And in the article, they actually acknowledged that this is the case, that tra- CrowdStrike was in control of the chain of custody of evidence. Why is a private security firm that was hired by the DNC in control of this chain of custody of evidence? What I'm implying here is that if you start to question CrowdStrike's motivations, do they have an agenda? Were they hired to develop a specific conclusion? They could have altered that image themselves. And that is, according to the FBI and all these other forensic investigators, that's the source of the evidence. So that needs to be examined. Why are we trusting that CrowdStrike is giving them an unmanipulated image of what happened? Very strange. This is not a question that's being asked more. And also, 
the CTO of CrowdStrike, one of the founders, he's an, like an ex-Russian guy who was born in Russia, and he's like very anti-Putin. So that's it's also a little bit odd to me that that's not being looked at a little bit more. And, I, and I'm not just saying that because I'm not trying to hone in on his ethnicity and like put that under a microscope and be like, this means he's, you know, he's like a Kasparov, like an anti-Russian agent hired by the U.S. I'm not trying to say that. What I am saying is that they have done things that were politically motivated in the past that have been, or not, sorry, not in the past, actually pretty recently that have been debunked by multiple parties. They have chosen to release papers that actually imply that the Ukrainian military artillery systems were hacked by Russian malware that caused tons of Ukrainian troop deaths, painting the Ukrainian army as like an incompetent force that got like hacked by these like unsophisticated Russian hackers. Did you hear about this? No. So CrowdStrike found a modded version of an app that was not on the Android store um, for Android phones that they claim had fancy bear code in it, which is GRU, Russian intelligence malware code. The CrowdStrike claimed that Russia geo- geolocated Ukrainian secret ut- uh, artillery positions based on this app by using a backdoor in them. And what happened was after they released this report, the Ukrainian government, the actual creator of the app itself, and military officials from the Ukrainian army, and the think tank, a British think tank that CrowdStrike quotes for to get their casualty stats from, all poked holes in CrowdStrike's report and said it was bullshit. Every single, almost every single party did. <laughs> so this is just a bizarre example of CrowdStrike releasing a paper, like trying to enter into the political fray, and, and it's almost kind of reads like a Bellingcat paper. Because mm-hmm. it links together all these different data points. So it's just a weird thing for them to be involved in in the first place. So this is just one example of how they may not be trustworthy and they might have a political motivation. Because it's just a strange thing to be a part of right after coming out with this idea that the DNC was hacked by Russian intelligence. Even if it were, and I hate to concede this point because I know that you don't like that, but let's just, let's just assume the worst that this was directed, even though there is no evidence for this that has been presented, and there probably never will be. And we're talking about an intelligence apparatus that has lied through its teeth to sell horrific military incursions that have cost the lives of millions of people, if not tens of millions of people, you know, for as long as we can remember. So all of that aside, let's just assume that they're telling the truth, that they do have proof that this is Russian intelligence and that, you know they didn't alter the server or whatever, and they can really trace it directly to the Russian government, even though we also know that that is not conclusive, (laughs) you know, based on what the U.S. even said about the cybersecurity treaty. My whole thing is, it is such a non-story. It is literally like not really worth anything. You know, it didn't alter the election. It didn't really do anything um, this, along with the ads, the Facebook ads, along with the other indictment, along with the DNI report, like none of it really means anything in the grand scheme of things. None of it really is a story. Um, you know what I mean? It didn't alter the results of the election still. And it's just a non-issue in the grand scheme of what we should be paying attention to. So that, that to me is just insane. It's like all of these reporters like, even if they did believe it, which they do, you can see how much they believe in this. 
don't they realize the magnitude of this compared with like other pressing issues? Well, especially in regards to like the danger of Trump. I think that's what I'm saying. Yeah, you're extremely. I mean, that's one of the most important points of all is that if we're if the goal is to take Trump out of office or get him impeached or to stop his policies, this is like the worst possible thing that you could be focusing on, even if it's real. Right. And here's why. Yeah, what? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, because the collusion angle of it specifically is the weakest allegation by far. Right. Like you could, I mean, I could be convinced that they hacked into these systems and they maybe even leaked these things if I was shown proof of it. But it's going to take me a lot to convince me that Trump actually colluded with Russian officials knowingly, you know, to to like to get them to help him win the presidency. Exactly. There's several layers here. It's like even if we were convinced of the initial hack being conducted by Russian intelligence, how does that actually prove that Trump colluded with them? All they have for that is that Trump just erroneously said in a rally something about her emails and then the hack apparently occurred after that. And that's like what they're throwing out there now. Like, well, Trump asked them to, and so they did. And to your point about how Americans, I think are not satisfied with the collusion and and aren't buying this largely is a Gallup poll was just done in June of this year, polling Americans on what the most important pressing issues facing this country are. And guess what? Russia was so minuscule of an answer that it didn't even register as a percentage. It's just amazing. I mean, I'll, I'll post this Gallup poll on the timeline, but economic problems are, you know, the economy was the largest thing, political corruption, um, immigration, healthcare, you know, all of these things going down, 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 terrorism, war situation with North Korea even registers more than Russia. I mean, that really shows you how this is not working on a large scale, even though it seems like it is because the punditry class of these neoliberal blobs are all like coalesced in this one narrative. And so it seems like everyone's on board, but this really proves that they aren't. It's very interesting. It's just really interesting. So I just think that it, the elites are floundering. They just keep doubling down on this, but the average American who is suffering economically, who's living in the reality of this country as a working class individual is not at all affected by this. Well, that's absolutely correct. And I guess the only place I would differ with you on in terms of what effect did it have is if they're making, trying to make the case and they effectively do that WikiLeaks actually did leak stuff given to them by Russian intelligence. That's the most convincing argument to make that it might've had some effect actually on the results of the election. But even still, it doesn't, it's still not enough. I mean, it's still a minuscule compared to all this other more important shit. Yeah, no, I mean, Paul Jay had a good analysis because he was just saying, you know, it's not a non-story. He's like, but it's not, it's not like we shouldn't cover it. He was like, but, but how big is this really? Assuming that it's true. How big is it? It's not big. Yeah. I mean, especially because the, we, it's like what's overshadowing it if even if you just believe that it's true and you really look at it as like a true thing and take it at face value, it's being completely overshadowed by the way it's politically being used and the propaganda energy and the force of it, like trying to push it on us. Exactly. That's the, because that's to me, the bigger story. Ultimately, exactly. No, exactly. that is the bigger story. Totally. And that's that is the, the story. That's the scarier part. Why are they doing this? 
Why that's are they the story right there. the fuck out of us so that's hard That's the story right there. Because if you really look at election interference, obviously you would look at the Mercers um, and the Koch brothers. If exactly. you're really wanting to, to look at influence in elections, who's shaping our elections, look no further than these right-wing billionaires who have shaped the House, the Senate, and the presidential race. So yeah, the question is, why are they doing this? Exactly. It's it, And that's what, to me, it gets into kind of scary territory. And I don't mean like deep state versus Trump territory, but I mean like, why are they ratcheting people up to this degree of hysteria about it? And why are all these artists and liberals and movie stars and film directors and music writers and musicians all saying that this is the darkest day in America? This is treason. He's a traitor. That's dangerous language for the liberal class to be throwing around like that. That's really unprecedented and really scary. And I guess I'm jumping ahead because like we don't even explain yet why, like why they're freaking out exactly to this level. Yeah, no, I was just going to quote Paul Jay again really quickly. He says, you know, the system itself has war and this kind of global competition built into its DNA. He says this gets in the way of the American military industrial complex who want and need a big enemy to justify this kind of military expenditure. And it gets in the way of basic U.S. foreign policy, geopolitical strategy coming out of the Second World War, um, that there should never be another superpower more than that, there shouldn't be another regional power that Americans can't control. That's where this contention comes from with Russia. There, there's a sector of the foreign policy establishment very clearly that are all behind this Russia narrative that do, do not like that Russia is not fully controlled by the U.S. And so that's where this is coming from. As we mentioned before, Trump represents a different section. Um, and he and, you know, Paul kind of has this. He just basically says, even if Russians did this. Um, who cares? <laughs> like, this is all normal stuff in the competition between big countries. And it's made into such an issue now because these forces want to wound Trump. And this is their best bet, even though I think it's their worst bet. But Trump has another good point about like, why didn't Obama try to stop it? Why didn't Obama make more light of this when they apparently knew this was happening? And that's a really good point because like, it's did they want it to happen was it not or was it just not that big of a deal the excuse obama gives and people in his administration gave doesn't really hold up it's basically that he says he didn't want to tip the scales and seem like he was politically trying to interfere with the election like obama says didn't want to make it seem like he was trying to interfere with the election that's what his that's his reasoning i find that incredibly unbelievable and something doesn't add up there and we still don't really know what Obama really thinks about it because he's been very cagey about that specific thing, Russian meddling. Yeah. And then when the summit happened, I mean, I don't know if you want to jump into just the rhetoric. Yeah, when the summit definitely. happened, um, you know, Trump basically said in front of Putin, like, we know that there was no collusion. Um, yeah. No, zero and collusion. Everyone fucking lost it. Lost it. Well, and not even just the the reason they really lost it was not just because he went out there and talked about the Owan brothers and zero collusion and Hillary's emails, because he literally said that he believed Putin's denial over the U.S. intelligence agency's consensus. Right. And that's what made them completely flip the right. fuck out. It was Now he's a treasonous insane. traitor. Treasonous traitor. And, I mean, the optics of that are terrible any way you look at it. I mean, I personally find it hilarious. Because it's so the not the right thing you're supposed to do. It's, it's the polar opposite of what a president should have said. 
It's like the worst thing he could have possibly said. I know. I was very it's funny. insane. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to read to you a part of what he actually said. This is the this is the part that really just destroyed the press class. He was asked by a reporter if he will personally condemn Putin and if he trusts the U.S. intelligence agencies over Putin's statements. Um, just now, President Putin denied having anything to do with the election interference in 2016. Every U.S. intelligence agency has concluded that Russia did. What, who, my first question for you, sir, is who do you believe? My second question is, would you now, with the whole world watching, tell President Putin, would you denounce what happened in 2016, and would you warn him to never do it again? And Trump says, we have two thoughts. You have groups that are wondering why the FBI never took the server. Why haven't they taken the server? Why was the FBI told to leave the office in the DNC? I've been wondering that. I've been asking about that for months and months. And I've, been I've been tweeting it out and, and talking it out about it on, on social, social media. media. Where is, is the, server? the server? I want to know where is the server and what is the server saying? With that being said, all I can do is ask the question. My people came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be, but I really do want to see the server. Uh, but I have, uh, I have confidence in both parties. I, I really believe that this will probably go on for a while, but I don't think it can go on without finding out what happened to the server. What happened to the servers of the Pakistani gentlemen that worked on the DNC? Where are those servers? They're missing. Where are they? What happened to Hillary Clinton's emails? 33,000 emails, gone, just gone. I think in Russia they wouldn't be gone so easily. I think it's a disgrace that we can't get Hillary Clinton's 33,000 emails. So I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. And uh, that was it. That's, that's all it took to make them flip out is that he was literally saying that he like believes Putin. Yeah. Um, And then you have, um, you have David Korn, uh, a journalist for mother Jones responding, basically responding to Rand Paul, simply pointing out like, you know, the U S interferes in countries. The U S does this too. And he just responded saying traitor. You have Richard Haas, the head of the CFR council on foreign relations, claiming international order for four centuries has been based on non-interference in the internal affairs of others and respect for sovereignty. We must deal with Putin's Russia as the rogue state it is. And then you have um, the nation's top spy, DNI Dan Coates, like you said, warning that Russia is, is the worst foreign power, threatening the U.S. with cyber attacks, warning lights are blinking red, just like 9-11. So comparing it to 9-11... And then you said, um, and then you have Lawrence O'Donnell, piece of shit on the last word on MSNBC. He said, Russia launched a war against the U.S. in 2016 and won. I mean, it goes on and on and on. You have Michael Moore. You have pretty much everyone using very, very strong language, either calling him an outright traitor, treasonous, or saying shit like this, Mm -hmm. actually daring to compare a phishing scam that John Podesta fell for to fucking 9-11. And then also Anderson Cooper saying this is the most disgraceful performance by an American president that I've ever seen, really? Like, out of all the times you've seen presidents do things, I mean, what about, 
you know, Bush um, standing on the pile <laughs> of 9-11. And I mean, there's just so many things that are more, way more disgraceful. The mission accomplished speech on the aircraft carrier. It's just, it's so odd. And what's interesting is Victoria Newland actually talked about it. And what she said was more honest to me and less like filtered than what I feel like a lot of the rest of the pundit class was saying. Often what you find with the Kagan family is they're sometimes a little candid. We turn now to Victoria Newland, former Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. She is now at the Center for New American Security. What does rhetoric like that do? Margaret, I think it's very dangerous, whether it's the rhetoric against the European Union or the rhetoric against NATO. The president has spent more time in the last week attacking our democratic family than preparing for the real foes, uh, President Putin, who he identified in his own national security strategy as a main threat to the United States. And so we're essentially beating the family on the front lawn of the House and letting our adversary enjoy that over the fence. So it's quite worrying. And she said it was just a very odd thing to be doing on an international stage to be. Given the climate. Yeah, given yeah. the climate. I mean, I agree with her. And that is, a, at least it's an honest kind of. And it um, is odd. It's so odd. Inquisition. That, yeah. That even, a, this is something from that a lot of Democratic operatives are making a big deal out of, but I just thought it was hilarious is this is a headline from Share Blue, of course, which is a, like a DNC fucking sponsored site says, even Russian state TV thought Trump's press conference with Putin looked suspicious. And the a Russian t- a TV host in Russia, her name was uh, Olga Skabiva, and she says, it's very bizarre. You can't bash your own country like that, especially when you're the president. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, when Trump says our relations are bad because of American foolishness and stupidity, he really smells like an agent in the Kremlin. She kind of was joking. <laughs> and it's true. It's hilarious. like what Trump's doing, like doubling down so much <laughs> on this concept and not backing down, it's giving the appearance so much that he is a criminal agent that it's it's like kind of like works perfectly for the narrative, even though I've come to the conclusion that he's doing it completely for his own ego. To him, conceding on this point will make him look bad and look well, wrong. Exactly. And this is he what can't. Katrina from the nation said that I totally agree with. We don't understand how much it bruises his ego to undermine his legitimate victory. Exactly. That's the crux of why he is doing this. And that right there, he, he's a child. Yeah. We know that he thrives on this victory, the win. He has the electoral college map framed mm-hmm. in his office. He brings it up yeah. still a year and a half later in every campaign rally, biggest crowds, biggest victory, da, da, da. So to hammer him on the illegitimacy and undermine this, he cannot concede to that. He cannot concede to that. And that's that's literally where it ends. That's and that's the logic. Also, that's also part of that wild card quality is like, this is what his advisors can't penetrate. Because you know exactly. damn well. This is what's interesting, Abby, is I watched CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. And Fox News was it's almost like they were trying to get Trump to change his rhetoric by nudging him, criticizing him sometimes, suggesting to him what to say other times, sort of like, here's what I think Trump should say, blah, blah, blah. You know, Trump watches a lot of Fox News, so it almost felt like this is the Republican establishment's last attempt to try to get him to 
behave himself. Yep, and this is the one of the only times that the entire Republican establishment has not fallen in line and just That's groveled exactly all over right. him. Yes, which is very interesting. Which which goes along to your point, which is since that there's the some sort of streak. Yeah, since the election. And I just wanted to mention really quickly just a few of the examples. So I mean, it just seemed like the GOP establishment was ready to pounce on him after this indictment, leading up to the summit naively thinking that he would stay on script this time and actually like listen to the advice he was getting. I even heard one Republican commentator say, you know, Trump should be making the argument right now that the election was legitimate. I won legitimately, but the Russian meddling in the election is a problem and we need to address it. And he was like, he should have been making that argument months ago. And that's that guy's right. That's the only argument that Trump strategically to keep everyone happy, you know, and to keep the ship intact or whatever and afloat that he could have been saying early on to try to like convince people to double down that his victory was legitimate, but also acknowledged and concede on the point that the rest of these people in the establishment want him to, but he won't, he's so egotistical. He can't even do that. One other quick point, the chairman of the human rights foundation, Gary Kasparov said something absolutely hilarious. He was like, I'm ready to call this the darkest hour oh, in yeah. the history of the American presidency. He's like, let me know if you can think of any competition. Yeah. And yeah. then, and then um, Jeffrey Sinclair from Counterpunch was like, not even close. He's like, let's start with Truman's decision to nuke Hiroshima and even darker nuke <laughs> Nagasaki. And just like everyone was just trolling and being like, oh, what about this? What about that? It's just nuts that someone who's actually the chairman of a human rights foundation can actually call this the darkest moment yeah who's like one of bill crystal's like best pals i mean jamie Crazy. kirchick and him are always hanging out when he goes over to russell's forums and stuff i mean yeah. kasparov is a total joke yeah and just just for some examples i mean on fox news chris wallace almost played the role of the attack dog for the media establishment he, he held up the 13 uh or the 12 uh, people indicted like the paper to uh, wave it in putin's face and he was like, <laughs> he was like, will you extradite these people? Like that was the talking point that you heard all day long. Like, why won't Trump demand Putin turn these people over? It's a symbolic indictment. Obviously, that wasn't going to happen. Chris Wallace tried it in front of Putin's face. Putin laughed and was just kind of like acting like a dick to him the whole time. Chris Wallace even went through all the supposed journalists that Putin has killed, like to his face. Brit Hume tore into Trump on Twitter. Newt Gingrich switched his script. He's putting pressure on Trump. Uh, Michael Cohen flips on the Russia narrative, finally, uh, which is weird. Sean Hannity, of course, was calling all the Republican spineless cowards for falling in line with the establishment and this pressure. And then Geraldo said that that he thought Trump meant well, but flubbed it, and that he actually appeared like an idiot savant at times during the press conference. <laughs> Kennedy of Kennedy Nation on Fox News said, why is Trump so deferential to a horrible person, referring to Putin? And Greg Gutfield, that like annoying, like pig man, quasi comedian on Fox News said like one of the only true things. He's like, this is who Trump is. What did people expect? I mean, that's, um, that's, that's, that's right. I mean, what, so you have to wonder why are they ratcheting this shit up to this level right now? Why are all the Republicans all of a sudden flipping on him? Do they really think that he's going to, that he's going to change his rhetoric? And, and Probably because they, probably because they know they don't represent Trump's faction of the establishment you know they they went along with everything that trump's saying and they groveled to him because they know that he's mm -hmm. for the most part ramming down these paul ryan-esque you know deregulation policies but i think at this point they do want to combat him on putin because they don't agree you um, think they have buyer's remorse relations. like they were on board for a certain period of time kind of half-heartedly and now they're like okay fuck now it's time to 
I think that they'll still stick with Trump on every other issue. Well, you're really exactly do. right about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that this is just kind of one of those rare moments where you're realizing that not the entire Republican establishment's in lockstep about this, obviously. And there's kind of a, a mini revolt against him. Yeah. And I just, I mean, and I think it's important to go back to this oversimplified narrative that people have latched onto about this deep state versus Trump dynamic, because when the media freaks out to this degree and everybody's calling him a traitor and stuff for doing this, I could see how it gives the appearance to people that that's like everyone's against him and there is some kind of conspiracy against him. I could understand why people think that based just on the media coverage, but it's not just this neoliberal and neocon establishment that hate Trump because if you go back to the election, it was originally the entire GOP establishment that also hated Trump, including Fox News and the Republican Party and donor class. If you go back, if you go back to 2016, they tried to have a contested convention. They tried to get a third party candidate to run against Trump after he won the primary. Fusion GPS, the opposition research firm to find opposition research on Trump was not hired originally by the DNC, like the Republicans and Hannity and even Trump keep repeating. It was originally hired by the Washington Free Beacon, the neoconservative outlet founded by PNAC alum Michael Goldfarb. So the Steele dossier itself wouldn't exist necessarily if Washington Free Beacon didn't hire this firm. That's incredible. That's incredible. It's It just totally changes the narrative that even these holdouts for Trump are not saying like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity know this, but they'll talk about the fusion GPS thing. Like it's only a democratic thing. And there was Russia interference. Hillary paid through a law firm, a investigator group fusion GPS. They hired a foreign national that put together a Russian dossier that was used to lie about you, which, by the way, Putin confirmed today he didn't have such information on you, apparently. He knew exactly about it because he's been saying it. it makes him angry when he sees it. And But interestingly, Sean Hannity was on an episode of The Circus, a Showtime show that mm-hmm. aired in March of 2016 that was, chrono- that was sort of chronicling the primaries. And long before Russia came into the equation, a clip from this show, The Circus, shows a Repub- top Republican donors, top donors, like dinner, meeting, um, all talking about why they couldn't allow Trump to get in. Like why they just couldn't believe that he was doing so on the primary and how they were terrified by it. And keep in mind, the point here is that none of them talked about Russia. This had nothing to do with Russia originally. Nothing. Nothing at all. This was all about what we've been talking about for months on the podcast. And I'm just going to read you some quotes from them of what they actually say about why they, from this show, The Circus, of why these donors um, didn't want Trump to get in in March of 2016. Rick Holt, major GOP fundraiser, said at this dinner, Trump's problem is that you don't know what his moral compass is. I think before it's all over, it's going to be hugely problematic for the party. Vin Weber, another top donor and former congressman, said, I talk to people all the time who tell me, why don't you Republicans do something about this guy? And I say, I'm sorry, this is not the Soviet Union. We can't all call a meeting and just say, this guy's out. And they all laugh. And then another guy says, we hate that. Ed Rogers, a former Reagan Bush advisor, says, we're shell-shocked, bewildered. Republicans are hierarchical, respectful, 
we fall in line and Trump has interrupted that cycle. He's not articulate. He's not poised. He's not informed. All he has going for him is a lot of votes. That's a little, you're just like getting to the crux of why the quote unquote deep state doesn't like Boom. Trump. The right. Whole That's thing. it removing right there. The right? Mask. Removing the mask. There it is. And so this was on record and Sean Hannity was asked in like a, like he was like around this restaurant where these people were having dinner and the sh- hosts of the circus were like, Hey Sean, we just went to this dinner and talked to all these donors and they said these things and Sean Hannity. And he was like, what do you think about that? And Sean Hannity's just like, it's nut, It's absolutely nuts. They, I can't believe they're trying, they're talking this way. And, and like, that's one of the only true things I've heard Sean Hannity say. Cause that's the, and that, and that's the interesting thing is back then that also proved that Sean Hannity is a disingenuous liar now because he doesn't talk about that on Fox news anymore. He just acts like it's a DNC holdovers, Obama administration conspiracy to take down Trump, but he knows it's not. Of course, these people aren't real journalists. They're not going to criticize their own, no. you know, the partisan hack. But at one time he acknowledged that this was happening, that the GOP right. was trying to destroy Trump and that in some way they probably still secretly are ready to all turn on him if they if it gets too politically untenable for them somehow. Yeah, totally. But only if that happens. Absolutely. And let's bring up this other facet of the summit, which is the Israel narrative. Um this is one of the weirdest things that happened in the, the press conference between Trump and Putin. Um, so my question to President Putin in Russia, this is a translator, since we brought up the issue of football several times, I use the football language. Mr. Pompeo mentioned that when we talk about the Syrian cooperation, the ball is in the Syrian court, Mr. Putin, and the Russian court. Is that true? And how would you use this fact having the ball. Very weird question. So Trump responds and he's like, I guess I'll answer the first part of that question. And he says, we've worked with Israel long and hard for many years, many decades. I think we've never, never has anyone, any country been closer than we are. President Putin is also helping Israel. And we both spoke with Bibi Netanyahu and they would like to do certain things with respect to Syria having to do with the safety of Israel. So in that respect, we absolutely would like to work together to help Israel. And then he goes on to say, but I think that working with Israel is a great thing and creating safety for Israel is something that both President Putin and I would like to see very much. <laughs> very, very, very strange response to a question about cooperating with Russia and Syria. Immediately goes to Israel, immediately kind of exposes that the policy in Syria is, is to secure Israel's, you know, the Greater Israel Project to basically, you know, we're talking it we've talked before about yeah. Iran, Syria, the whole goal here. It was just so bizarre how blatant it was. Well, it and how blatantly that I feel like Trump was trying to maybe and I'm not saying that Trump isn't as like a Zionist or that he doesn't really isn't really into Israel, but giving lip service to these Sheldon Adelson and some of these neocons that maybe he thought that that might overshadow the fact that he they all hated the fact that he was meeting with Putin and it had zero effect. Even though he it's tried fun, to swing for the fences, but it's just funny that they keep calling him a, a Russian puppet, and it's like here he is, just constantly exactly. talking about Israel. Of course, we know the Flynn meeting was about yeah. convincing Russia to vote on behalf of Israel. Sheldon Adelson is a twenty-five million dollar donor to him. Yeah, and one of the things he keeps saying, and I also think this has to do with his relationship with Netanyahu. He wants to get in more good with Netanyahu, and he keeps saying on all these interviews with Tucker and Hannity after the fact that. Putin's a, he's a big fan of Bibi. He loves Bibi. He's a, 
He's a believer in Israel. He's a fan of Bibi and uh, really helping him a lot and will help him a lot, which is good for all of us. He thinks these people will start liking Putin if they think that he's pro-Israel or something. I don't understand why he keeps making light of that. But yeah, it's almost like he wants Netanyahu to be watching these things. Well, what's weird, that kind of blows a hole in the whole RT narrative. Like you've mentioned before, RT is one of the only places that can just completely criticize Israel in an unabashed way with zero editorial control. Why is that? If if it's all about Russian policy and echoing Putin's line, Putin is pro-Israel. Putin, you know, they both consulted with Bibi Netanyahu before the summit. Yeah. So why is it that that RT can say that? can be just unabashed with the truth about Israel if it if it is just such a government mouthpiece. I find that just really weird. Well, it is really weird. And there'll probably be some like, you know, hokey, um, quasi-intellectual Twitter think tanker who'll be like, <laughs> well, you know that Russia is just trying to like play both sides of like the polar, you know, each polar end of the spectrum and is trying to like, they'll just come up with some like weird convoluted explanation for why like RT no runs Israel critique that. because they want to, get Americans to watch their program and buy into their other propaganda. They're, you know, they're, there's right, right, right. Peter Pomerantsev and like Michael Weiss have probably already mm-hmm. have written mm-hmm. something explaining mm-hmm. that because they anyway, also want to make note. the left. One of the goals of our propaganda apparatus, the Charlie Arkies and the Molly Apples and a lot of those vi- that wave of those vice reporters is that they want to get Americans, the American left to hate Putin and believe that he's sort of on an equal plane of evil as sort of the U.S. empire and U.S. militarism and expansion across the world. Right. You know, we can't get the left to think Putin's worse, but at least we can get them to act like there's a false equivalency between them. And that's the propaganda soft spot, you know, weak spot we'll really hammer in on. And it's sort of worked. Yeah. And Democrats are so dumb. They think that an endorsement from James Comey, who's a lifelong cop. Oh, my God. Republican is going to help them. He's like, you know what? Everyone should vote Democrat. It's like, what is this? Speaking of the Democrats, um, just going back to this, the way that the resistance is reacting to this and how they're so emboldened by it. I mean, they're so emboldened by this new indictment and this Helsinki summit fallout that Neera Tannen was photographed at the White House fence running, like managing a protest against the, the summit with a giant sign behind her you know, not saying this is an official part of her protest, but it was like she just allowed herself to be photographed with a giant sign behind her saying something like, I hope Putin used a condom before he fucked Trump in the ass. Excuse me? And it's just right there behind her. It's like, (laughs) maybe, and I'm just going to throw this out there, it could have been a Jack Posobiec, rape Melania sign style thing. It could have been that, but I have a feeling it wasn't. I have Mm -hmm. a feeling it's real. And that says a lot if it is, if it's real. So well, given the constant homophobic memes and posters and art, it's not really surprising. Yeah. Even Bill Plimptoon from, uh, used to show a bunch of shit on liquid television that you and I used to love yeah, is now doing cartoons showing Putin, um, and Trump like laying in bed and, you know, kissing. And it's like, dude, so everybody just needs to stop. Sad MAGA. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just going to jump in here by myself and add a little addendum about more of the fallout from Trump's Helsinki press conference. And also, in a rare move, a reversal and an attempt by Trump to do damage control. And if it sounded like I was laughing there a little bit, it was because I almost was. Because 
in Trump's first attempt to do damage control, it almost seemed like he was trolling, honestly, when I watched it. And I'll get to that in a second. But first, in another completely non-surprising move, following the Helsinki press conference, Trump's first two interviews that he stacked up, he gave an exclusive interview to Sean Hannity and then another one to Tucker Carlson, of course. And then after that, he got interviewed by two other reporters, one for CBS News and another for CNBC, who I frankly have never heard of. And I'm wondering if when he gets interviewed on any other news network that's not friendly to him, he just has a checklist of all the people he's not willing to do an interview with. And then he just picks like a random person who maybe doesn't have any history of hostility towards him. So first I wanted to play you a clip from the Sean Hannity interview because it's hilarious just the way that the interview opens. Sean Hannity says, uh, you came out strong during the press conference um, by talking about Hillary's emails and, and asking, where's the server? Uh, a lot came up. You were very strong at the end of that press conference. You said, where are the servers? What about what Peter Strzok said? Where are the 33,000 emails? And there was this mystery answer that I think surprised a lot of people by the president of Russia as it relates to the Mueller investigation. Well, first of all, he said there was no collusion whatsoever. Uh, I guess uh, he said as strongly as you can say it, they have no information on Trump. And uh, one thing you know, if they had it, it would have been out. Just from an optics standpoint, I mean, even if you agree with Trump, he really flubbed that. I mean, you can't talk about someone else's crimes as a way to deflect away from crimes that are alleged against you. I mean, even though I don't think Trump is guilty of collusion, it looks really bad, I think, where he constantly brings up Hillary's emails, talks about how unfair it is. It's just not a good strategy at all. So it's just funny to sh hear Sean Hannity. Virtually everyone else on Fox News thought that he at least really flubbed it. And he said it was so nonsense. That he said it's nonsense, is right. And he uh, also said there's absolutely no collusion, which you know and everybody that watches your show knows. And I think... Most of the country knows, and Tucker standing right over there definitely knows because he gets it. He's one of the people that get it. We get questions on the witch hunt. And I don't think the people out in the, in the country buy it, but the reporters like to give it a shot. I thought that President Putin was very, very strong. So the one true thing that Trump does hone in on in his answer is that he says the country understands um, because based on the polling that we just read, the country doesn't care, generally speaking, about this Russia issue. It's very low on the list of priorities. And he's also partly referring to the fact that his base doesn't care at all. Even if they conceded on the point that Russia hacked the DNC, it doesn't matter to them. But then again, he reiterates and doubles down on the fact that Putin came out very strong in his denials. Trump tries to reiterate the point here with Hannity that the meeting between them face-to-face -face drastically improved their relations extremely quickly. And Trump describes it as a wedge that's trying to drive them apart. Well, I think we're doing really well with Russia as of today. I thought we were doing horribly before today. Really, I mean horribly, dangerously. It was that big, that dramatic today. Oh, I think it was great today, but I think it was really bad five hours ago. I think we really had a potential problem. And we've had a phony witch hunt deal drive us apart. This is the biggest wedge. 
This was the think, biggest well, it's, wave. It's the thing that he told me when he went in. He said, what a shame. He felt it was very hard for me to make a deal because of, you know, all of this nonsense in much of he the case. The nonsense. But he can't help himself in the second part of the answer that he gives and just sort of rambling on and on incoherently about how Paul Manafort's a really nice guy. It's just a strange, nonsensical sort of deflection, random rant he goes on. Then they have 12 people. These aren't 12 people involved in the campaign. Then you had many other people. Some told, a lie. you look at Flynn, it's a shame. But the FBI didn't think it was lying. Uh, with Paul Manafort, who's, who really is a nice man, you look at what's going on with him, it, it's like Al Capone. And I just think this illustrates that Trump is not articulate enough, and ultimately he just doesn't seem to care about making genuinely coherent arguments. He's more interested in sort of like the tabloid, the clickbait, the red meat, the base. Trump at this point wasn't trying to change his rhetoric at, from the summit or do damage control at all because Hannity says, what do you think of Putin's idea to invite Mueller over to Russia to have, have these people come over there and talk to Putin? And Trump is just like, oh, I thought it was fascinating. I, I thought it was a great idea. But I don't think they'll want to do it. And he sounds, it's in a sort of a rare moment where Trump actually sounds really pouty and sad, where he reveals that about himself. Just listen to the way he responds here. Did you like President Putin's idea? Robert Mueller should go talk to him. Because I, I, was, I was fascinated by it. And his prosecutors would prosecute it. And he said that Robert Mueller's people could go with them, but they probably won't want to. Yeah, interesting. But after this one aired, they, Fox News waited a day to air the Tucker Carlson interview. And by the next day, the fallout was so intense from the Helsinki summit that Trump felt, apparently, that he needed to do a press conference in the White House. So he invited the press out there. It was, in my mind, it almost seemed like trolling because he said that he misspoke. Um, he read through the transcript. Um, and now he understands why some of the press is upset. I came back. And I said, what is going on? What's the big deal? So I got a transcript. I reviewed it. I actually went out and uh, reviewed a clip of uh, an answer that I gave. And I realized that there is a need for some clarification. It should have been obvious. I thought it would be obvious. But I would like to clarify, just in case it wasn't. In a key sentence in my remarks, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. The sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why I wouldn't or why it wouldn't be Russia. So just to repeat it, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. Which is hilarious because that's really not even what the press was so upset about at all or what people are freaking out about. And while he's saying this, the lights mysteriously flicker off in the White House. And then he says, must be the intelligence agencies. I have a full faith in our intelligence agencies. Whoops, they just turned off the light. That must be the intelligence agencies. There it goes. Okay. You guys okay? Good. That was strange. If this is damage control, it was hilarious, borderline trolling damage control. But in the following days, he attempted to do more. And I'll explain in a second. But first, I wanted to play you some clips from this Tucker Carlson interview with him, because it just shows you how 
off script he goes and how first right out of the gates he just instead of talking about how Putin's a bad guy or how he thinks Putin should be punished for doing things he lays into John Brennan so hard um, where you could tell he just personally has a fiery hatred for the guy listen to this the reaction to your press conference in Washington was swift and intense. Former CIA director John Brennan described it as treasonous and a, a potentially impeachable offense. Well, I think Brennan's a very bad guy. And if you look at it, a lot of things happened under his watch. I think he's a very bad person. And if that wasn't bad enough, the optics of doing that right after the Helsinki summit, Trump continued to bash NATO. I think at this point, he kind of likes sticking it to these people who freak out at his NATO comments. Listen to exactly how he responds to Tucker. NATO obligates the members to defend any other member that's attacked. That's so right. let's say Montenegro, which joined last year, is attacked. Right. Why should my son go to Montenegro to defend it from attack? I Why is that? I understand what you're saying. I've asked the same question. You know, uh, Montenegro is a tiny country with very strong people. They may get aggressive. And congratulations, you're in World War III. So after this, there was still plenty of fallout raining down. Trump's reversal and attempt to do damage control by saying he meant the word wouldn't instead of would became a laughing stock. It was enough for people like Newt Gingrich and a lot of Republicans who were looking for the chance to immediately jump back on ship. Trump's own people, I believe, and based on some of the news headlines coming out, seem to be putting even more pressure on him internally to get him to say stronger things about the hacking and about Putin. And there was a CBS News interview aired so the summit was on Monday. This interview aired on Wednesday. And of course, CBS News went ahead with the headline right when they dropped the interview clip saying, Trump, for the first time ever, blames Putin. Mr. Trump, for the first time in public as president, blamed Vladimir Putin directly for meddling in the 2016 U.S. election. But if you actually watch the interview, Trump knows how to handle the press extremely well still. And he's able to sort of not really blame Putin, but just throw out lip service to say that he blames Putin at the same time. And he's barely even trying even here. Keep in mind, this is two days later. This is his attempt to do damage control. And you know damn well that people were, from underneath of him in his own administration, were like, you have to say something blaming Putin. You have to at this point. But notice how he weasels out of it, sort of, still. But you haven't condemned Putin specifically. Do you hold him personally responsible? Well, I would, because he's in charge of the country, just like I consider myself to be responsible for things that happen in this country. So certainly, as the leader of a country, you would have to hold him responsible, yes. What'd you say to him? Uh, very strong on the fact that we can't have meddling, we can't have any of that. Now, look, we're also living in a grown-up world, but I let him know we can't have this, we're not going to have it, and that's the way it's going to be. But he denies it. So if you believe U.S. intelligence agencies, is Putin lying to you? I don't want to get into whether or not he's lying. I can only say that I do have confidence in our intelligence agencies as currently constituted. And his attempts to do damage control even after this were milk toast at best. But at this point, he has tilted enough where he's thrown them a little bone. So all the Republicans don't have to jump ship yet, and everybody can stop freaking out just a little bit. And that's all it seems like he's going to give them. So, so wrap it up with what you think that we didn't, or maybe just kind of conclude 
your findings and give kind of a last minute analysis and of course cover anything else that you feel like you didn't um, with the doc that you prepared? Sure. I mean, I think one of the main things I concluded from this is to me, it has really shown that as awful as Trump is and as racist and horrible as he is on so many things, one of the things that I still continue to be fascinated by, and I'm at this moment, I'm more fascinated now than I ever have been since he's become president, is that he appears to not listen to anybody in these certain crucial moments that are so important according to like the way things are done in the American government or American diplomacy that it just seems like he is operating purely egoistically to a point that actually does make him dangerous to certain people in the establishment. Only for that reason alone, it's very interesting to watch something like this play out. And it's also scary to watch the media ratchet up the the rhetoric to the point of actually making Trump look like the more sane one in the equation in this specific dynamic. And that's dangerous to be doing also because Trump is so dangerous in other ways. There's important things to be criticizing him for. And yet to get this hysterical about him saying he believes Putin's denial. I mean, yeah, that's the optics of that are crazy. It looks crazy. It's an insane thing to do, but it's to act like it's the end of the world. I mean, the media loses a ton of legitimacy when they do that. And it just makes this fake news thing that Trump always likes to lean on more powerful. Like it, it helps Trump. It's like, it just, all this shit just seems to help him. And if the real goal is to take him down because he's a fascist, which I believe he definitely has fascist tendencies. I mean, if that's the goal, then we really like everybody needs to think of a new strategy who's fixated on this Russia shit. Someone mentioned to me that we keep using the word fascist and stuff. And he, and um, someone was like, we're not living in fascism. They're like under fascism, obviously you wouldn't be able to protest. They're like all civil disobedience would be shut down. Clearly this is capitalism. This is, I mean, yes, definitely there are fascistic tendencies because late stage capitalism can, can really easily lead into fascism and Trump definitely does have those characteristics, but like, it's important, I think, to make that differentiation and be like, we're not in a fascist society, obviously we can get there really quickly. Well, it's like, like, it's soft fascism that can tip into full blown fascism very quickly. I mean, just look at before 9-11 and after the increase in like fascist policy. So totally, totally. It's uh, it, it can get really, really intense really quickly in the United yeah, States. And I get kind of similarly to you saying, you know, all of the media being against Trump and all the media kind of being uniform in this narrative. Of course it, it makes it seem like Trump is fighting this kind of apparatus to the contrary to people who don't know, you know, how to read through the indictment and kind of are like me where they're, they don't understand that much about computers enough to really get a hold on this. Like, I do understand why you believe that this is conclusive and that it's a slam dunk. Like, because it's when everyone who's even the progressive left-leaning people who were previously skeptics on this issue are now saying this is a slam dunk. I get it. But I think that you need to take it in the framing in the context of how big is it, um, continue to question intelligence claims and continue to demand evidence but also just like weigh it. It's just important to kind of keep a bigger perspective here. Yeah. And I also think people have the tendency to 
use these false framings because Trump is like a broken clock. He'll latch on to true points, just, you know, distortions of them and use them to his advantage. And then people can just use those like saying, where are the servers? Why don't the FBI take the servers? It's such an oversimplified way to actually say something that's a legitimate point, but people can hone in on that and be like, oh, this is just like a bullshit conspiracy theory. You're an idiot for asking this question now because now Trump is. And it's really unfortunate that the more we you doubt this and the more you act like it's not a big deal, the more you're, you become, you know, optics wise on the side of these like horrible right wing neo-Nazi people. It's the appearance of, oh, you're anti-anti-Trump. I see people saying, right. you know, I'm so far right. I'm left. Yeah. Like I saw Sam Biddle <laughs> calling Aaron Maté the inverse of Louise Mensch. Oh my God. It's insane. It has to be stressed again that Robert Mueller said that Iraq had WMDs. He put out neocon propaganda. He tried to frame Stephen Hatfield during the anthrax investigation. He was sued by the lead investigator on the case for stovepiping evidence that could have shown um, that Bruce Ivins wasn't guilty. This is all documented stuff. So why is everybody out there, you know, looking at this indictment and saying it's so conclusive? A lot of the evidence isn't shown. And we're just supposed to trust that Mueller's team is operating honestly and honorably. Be- I mean, just because been, Trump is yeah. on the opposite side and saying that they're corrupt, that doesn't mean that they're not corrupt just because Trump is a, an idiot. Robbie, years ago, we kind of predicted all of this in a weird way. We said, you know, the next terrorist attack, quote unquote, is not going to be on a building or something that's tangible or something that we can see. It's going to be a hack. It's going to be something in cyberspace that we're going to see a massive crackdown and that there really can be no proof provided purposefully. And what has happened since? A massive crackdown on the internet. You can't even like get your stuff seen on Facebook. The shadow banning, the algorithms, all of this has come true. Yeah. It's quite amazing, actually. That and and to say that that's just all an organic response to this quote unquote idea of Russian meddling. You would have to be one of the most willfully ignorant participants in this dialogue, like on the planet, to say that that there wasn't some kind of coordinated, frankly, pre-planned effort to censor the internet, to stifle our free speech even more, and to make everybody think it's totally legitimate for ha- for doing it, because Trump is so bad. Trump is so bad. We need to censor the internet. Pretty much, Russia trolled us into censoring the internet. Apparently. Our own internet. I mean, that's 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 why it's so strange to go back to this idea is why did Obama not say anything? So why doesn't he say anything now really about it? He could have had the power to, as crazy as it would have been, he could have been like, we need to delay the election. The Russians are hacking into the election. It would have been a crazy thing politically to do, but he could have come out and made a speech like that. I'm just saying. If it was really this big of a deal. So... Again, well, we know it's not this big of a deal. We know that, you know, even if it were true, it's not a big deal. It's not a really big story. And, you know, I'm not going to belabor the point of how much the U.S. interferes and has interfered in Russia. So um, thank you so much, Robbie, for compiling all that. It was just really, really incredible to hear you go through it. And it answered a lot of questions that I had. And hopefully it kind of cleared up some things for our listeners and um, let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any disagreements. If you have any extra information, we'll continue to update and and you know build 
on this idea of the Russian meddling stuff, obviously, in future podcasts. So really appreciate all your efforts. Yeah, thanks so much for listening, everybody. And if you liked what you heard today and you've liked our other podcasts, please consider donating to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. And if anyone wants to record a little mini voice message, please send that to Abby, A-B-B-Y, at TheEmpireFiles.tv. And we will play them on future episodes of our just anything that you want to say and why you like the podcast. So thank you so much, everyone, for donating, for listening. You guys rock. Yeah, even if you have questions, too, feel free to send those. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, email me there with any questions, concerns, or little memos. Peace. Peace.